yeah, Matt, this is how you get fired. So oh like, my God. You, you're, you're already not getting paid. You're about to start paying us. Oh my Think God. About it. So the more I mess up, I have to what, just Venmo you guys? Yes, reparations. All right, Elliot. Yeah, you could just put you could just put it through the Patreon. I really need to get some like interns below me that I can who, pass who pay off for their opportunities yeah. to learn. I can pass off some of this work too. Are you telling me we got to post a job posting for an intern's assistant? Yeah. Well, actually, it's an intern's manager, but also you're still an intern. Assistant to the senior assistant. I think is what we decided on earlier. Or... I thought you got demoted since then. What? Oh, Jesus. So Matt quit his job to become a full-time podcaster, got fired from that. That's generous. Got demoted. <laughs> <laughs> got demoted. And turns out he needs money. So if you like Matt, please send him money to no, pay reparations don't... to Elliot. Yeah. Help me funnel money to Elliot. That's not a pyramid scheme at all. No, no it's not. Feel guilty, white people. Pay the there, black man. There's levels to it. Yeah, so speaking of levels, today's part three of uh, the forgotten story of Denmark Vesey. So speaking of uh, reparations, this is our reparations. This is my reparations, bringing this story back to life. This is unacceptable. Uh, it's, I feel I like cash would have been better. I, it would, but... <laughs> I am a podcaster, Matt. I don't have cash. Yeah, that's true. I had enough money to buy that fucking microphone. You're working with what God gave you. Yes. A microphone. God bought it through me, Elliot. Oh, Come my on. God. We're <laughs> evangelical now. And he was, uh, got into God the Spirit and was, like, speaking with tongues as he was, like, buying the microphone. It's. I mean, fortunately, it was on Amazon, so, like, they didn't have to hear it. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> Uh, so we are talking, we are finishing part three. This is part three. We're finishing the Denmark Vesey episode today. That is the goal. If we're going to get there is another story because we are radically unhinged, almost as unhinged as Denmark Vesey was. I know I said I was going to speak lovingly and do my, do my part, but the man did want to hunt children. So, uh, you know, it's a give and take. It's a, you know, I guess. You got you got to start with the small game. I don't I don't know. <laughs> Oof. I I will try to be less militant as I was in the second episode. I got fired up. I called for a lot of heads. I think it's okay. You are allowed to call for heads, Elliot. It's okay. Fine. I'll, I'll tone it down a bit. Part three. We're just gonna finish it. Part three. The Elliot story. Watching him radicalize. He's he's recording this with his rifle in his lap. I could play Denmark Vesey in a movie. He you could actually. That'd be awesome. Uh, so, uh, for all the people from Warner Brothers that are tuning in, we've got you a show, we've got you a movie, we've got you an actor. I'm aspiring as fuck. I will act. You will. Let's talk about these hunted children that did not get hunted. So, the reason why he wanted to kill every man, woman, and child in Charleston that was white that's was- a, That's a wild way to start the story, I will say. This is part three. It's if you want to go, if you want to okay, go, if you want to go back to the beginning, we got two two other episodes for you to listen to. Yeah, and speaking of which, we are the Poor Pearls Almanac. We didn't cover that, I oh, guess. Yeah. So hopefully, uh, I don't know. We're like five minutes in. You knew that by now. I didn't even know we were recording. It that is also <laughs> true. I thought we were um, just hanging out. So these these kids, his argument was that they were future slave owners. So like, you can't just leave them. They're gonna want vengeance, right? That's white people are big on vengeance. You can't leave them behind. 
you know, the other case I guess you could make is that if you burn the entire city down and you leave the children, they're probably going to like starve to death, right? So I don't know if that's any better. Uh, so yeah, it's complicated. It's a mercy killing. A mercy killing. Yeah, I, I feel like complicated is a pretty mundane word for what's the whole thing going on here. I feel like mercy killing, while exacting vengeance, is contradictory. I'm conflicted. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, let's get into it. Uh, so just to catch everyone <laughs> up, um, because we started at a very weird point in the story. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, our, our buddy Denmark, if you haven't listened to the first two episodes, he was an enslaved man who managed to buy his freedom in a lottery. He was involved with a historically black church. The church ended up getting targeted by the rich white people in Charleston and him alongside many other people became quickly radicalized. And at this point where we are in the story is only a few years before the attempted uprising. Wow, that was way shorter than I was expecting. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm long-winded a little bit. Yeah, you guess? That was the perfect Cliff Notes, Cliff Notes synopsis of a story that I've been looking for. But when Matt asked you, you know, Matt didn't ask, I guess, but Matt you know what? Just do, just, just do that again from now on when I ask. How about that? That, no one is going to listen to a podcast that's like three minutes long, Elliot. No, no, just the beginning to get them into the episode instead uh-huh. of the diatribe of word vomit we do at the beginning of each episode. I like word vomit. You're just asking us to be a little more organized, though. Because that's not going to happen. It's yeah. too much, I guess. Continue the story. Okay, so we we had talked about, in particular, how the arrests during this moment at the church were really important, right? Over 100 people were arrested. And um, people were really mad about this because it was like the one like safe space for the African-American community in Charleston. Now, Gullah Jack, our, our good friend who is a religious leader for a lot of Africans in the area, uh, was also involved with the church. And um, he was also arrested with them. And his solution at the time when this happened was that they they needed to give out immediate retribution. Okay, so maybe the raid by the police was based on some rational fear that these people were going to fuck shit up. I mean, probably. Like, you know, let's be honest. Clearly, people were not happy to be enslaved. And um, it was Denmark, from the little documentation we have, who basically convinced Gullajak that the time wasn't right, that they weren't quite ready to retaliate. So for the next four years, from 1818 to 1822... Denmark would speak with those enslaved in Charleston and up to 60 miles outside of the city. While it might seem unimportant to stretch so far, given the time period, this was a really strategic move by Denmark. These areas were recently populated by displaced Haitian aristocrats after the slave uprising in 1791, and with them came French slaves who knew and could speak to the successes in Haiti. Gotta believe that's a chance to win. It wasn't even just that. Like, I think having that voice is really important. But I think Denmark also knew that, or at least believed that they probably had some like details of the plans that unfolded and could maybe give some guidance on what would make them most successful. I also think because his plan was to uh, flee for Haiti after they overthrew the city, having some people from Haiti would help their cause of like, please take us in. Yeah. And I'm, I'm guessing that. Having people who had been enslaved before the uprising makes those ships that much more valuable to the island to bring their brothers and sisters home. So I imagine a, a lot of them still had 
living family like in Haiti and many in Haiti hoped for their eventual return. Yeah, so like these are people that know that the that an uprising can be successful and they they want to, you know, go home. So, you know, I think that was a big piece of it. And now despite Haiti being so close to the United States, the government wasn't able to secure any trade with the island because of the south and its continued use of slaves. However, you know, it's an island, so they they have they need things. Alternatively, or additionally, I guess, Haiti didn't want to trade with slave owners for obvious reasons. The South feared trading with a place where slavery had been violently overthrown would set a bad precedent for the way they lived. I mean, trade would mean ships coming from the freed lands and people talk. Exactly. So did the U.S. start trade with Haiti after the Civil War? Yeah, fairly quickly afterwards, but uh, back to Denmark. He understood group dynamics and relationships really, really well. Like I said, he would have made an incredible politician at another time. Depending on who he was talking to, he understood how to wear different hats for how the insurrection was sold. To the Christians, he was the Messiah of the Old Testament. To the Haitians, an intellectual military leader in the same vein as L'Overture, who had uh, defeated the white Haitian army. And to the Africans, Gullah Jack was his representative and spoke to his chieftain status. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting that his personal life like reflected these many hats and different sides to him. We talked about his relationships and uh, some of the previous episodes, right? Yeah. In many ways, he embodied that like cosmopolitan intermingling of African cultures that existed in Charleston at this time. He was both a native and foreigner, both a free man, but also having to watch his own children remain enslaved. So it's kind of like a walking Venn diagram of a slave and a free man. Yeah, basically. Is that that, that middle gray part? He's just able to like live in a lot of these different circles of Charleston society. Well, I mean, gray is what you get when you mix black and white. So he's literally a gray man. True. <laughs> yeah. So by 1822, Vesey had a list of 9,000 names who had declared their plans to support the uprising. In May, the core of this uprising met to discuss this plan. They had stolen gunpowder, weapons, and diffusers and planned to have explosions erupt across the city at the same time. As the bells rang and chaos would ensue. They believed the white men would leave their homes to see what was happening, and their recruits would be waiting outside their homes with everything from guns to hatchets, basically whatever they could get their hands on. Musket balls had been stashed in bags across the city waiting for the revolution. Wigs had been made from hair purchased from a white barber, and they had planned to confuse guards with makeup before firing on them. Now, this white barber that gets involved is a big deal later on. So the plan was originally set for Sunday, July 14th, 1822. Seems pretty wild to take over a city with a little chaos and confusion. I Yeah, it, it was a time before firearms were, I'd say, accurate as they are today. So there would definitely be a whole lot of chaos. I'm thinking of like, for some reason, I just thought of the movie Gangs in New York, like that type of fucking chaos. It's crazy. Um, but a large army could overthrow a city. So I feel like they were trying to amass their, their little army to, to get this done. And especially when there weren't any like walls or anything to defend Charleston, they, they were already infiltrated because they were already there. It seems like it's one of those um, sort of like a bring it down from within kind of plan. Yeah. You know, it's really important to remember we had talked about the population, uh, I think, an episode ago. The population was about eight to one of black to white people in the city. And like that matters. Yeah, so the the power that they held while institutionally 
was also like very much like an illusion physically. Yeah, exactly. Now Sundays were one of the few days that slaves would uh, that slaves would be able to freely move with you know comparatively speaking little supervision. Further, during the summer, um, when they were planning this, many of the military leaders would leave the city because they would vacation in places like Newport, Rhode Island. Now, this wasn't the only thing going in Denmark's favor that summer. Now, uh, I kind of hinted at this in the previous episode, but there was a lot going on economically in Charleston at the time. Cotton had plummeted over the previous years, and this meant that slave owners were cutting food rations, increasing work hours, and in general, giving the enslaved less reason to be willing to tolerate the current conditions. It's weird that the economic argument for slavery was clearly failing at this time, even though they invested so heavily in keeping slavery in place. Yeah, like the writing was on the wall that there was too much labor, too cheap to um, like without even talking about like the humanitarian you know, issues, like obviously, uh, like from a, a simple economic condi- like analysis, there was just too much labor. And, you know, machinery, you think about the early 19th century with the, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, quickly, there's just too many people without enough people consuming those goods because the enslaved weren't getting anything. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Pearls website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorpearls.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. So at the age of 62, I know you thought he was younger, Denmark was ready to free his people or die trying. Yo, he was that old when he was ready to kick off the revolution? Yeah, my man lived like a pretty full life despite the ending. Yeah, I think think he waited on purpose. He wasn't ready to die. (laughs) He was like, you know what? I might have cancer. I guess it's time to, you know, do the thing. Let's let's make this, uh, see if we can win the revolution or Go out with a bang. Yeah. So as that summer continued forward, some of the recruits started, you know, like many, I'm assuming, had second thoughts about like slaughtering all of the whites in the city. It was at this time that Denmark, considering the state of the surplus slaves, as we had discussed, began to spread the rumor that whites were planning to start a fake fire to justify butchering the excess slave population. And that's in quotes. Jesus, I feel like that might have helped keep people in check. Yeah, there's no doubt that to recruit, the people needed to have very little to worry about in terms of losing. This is the same reason that Denmark actually explicitly refused to recruit free blacks or even house servants, mostly. He was worried about Uncle Tom's in their cabins. Yeah, something like that. And to be honest, he turned out to be pretty right about it. Because ultimately, it was, uh, as you said, an Uncle Tom who foiled the plan. A man named Peter Prulot, who was a house servant for Colonel Prulot, would be that Uncle Tom. 
On May 22nd, 1822, he refused to join the revolution. And it wasn't Denmark that had tried to recruit him, but someone else. Almost immediately after, he told his slave owner, Colonel Perlou, where William Paul, the slave who had approached him, had found him, and he was also quickly grabbed. After 24 hours in solitary confinement, William Paul confessed to attempting to recruit Peter. William was kept for interrogation until June 8th, after 17 days of being whipped with cowhides, which stripped off the skin and bruised the exposed muscle underneath, where he confessed to the full plan, naming Peter Poyas, Mingo Hearth, and Ned Bennett as being the chief recruiters. Jesus. I mean, I, I, I don't know what to say. I remember that scene from Django. Good movie. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if... Yeah. So these three were in and out of the sugar house in just a few hours. The governor truly believed not only that the black population was loving towards their white masters, but that Ned Bennett in particular represented the best of slaves. He represented, and I quote, an attachment and fidelity to his master, end quote, which was unquestionable. Awesome. So Ned was ready to go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ned knew how to play that game. And Ned was actually one of the crucial players in keeping the plot from being foiled at first. He voluntarily arrived at the Sugar House because he wanted to clear his name and reputation. Upon leaving shortly after this visit unscathed, he returned to Denmark's house to push forward the date before any more news was made about their plans. Some young enslaved boys were caught talking about gunpowder being used to blow up whites the following week. Gullah Jack shaved his beard, which was what made him so recognizable. The black community was getting anxious, and Denmark felt they were becoming unpredictable, waiting for the moment to come. He pushed the date up to June 16th. Jesse Blackwood, co-conspirator, planned to ride out on the 8th to let the enslaved on the plantations know that the date was moving forward, and money was raised to give him a horse to hasten the trip. He planned to leave that night, but for unknown reasons, didn't leave until a week later. Oh, man. Okay, so that's interesting, um, pushing up the date, because a sense of urgency and uh, operation like this, especially with so much at stake, is going to make people nervous and, in my eyes, open the door for mistakes to be made and for things to not go according to plan because it's rushed. Yeah. So it seems like uh, Jesse Blackwood had some real real procrastination going on. Yeah, and also, and also their enemies knew what was going on and they were unaware of it entirely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I think like, you know, it's one of those things that if you spend any time like like Elliot, you you spend a lot of time shooting. Once you put a timer on it, it's a total you suddenly forget how a gun works. Yeah. You're like what am I doing with this thing? And I think that was kind of happening with them. Mm -hmm. Stress adds a completely different element to situations making Easy things hard and making complex things seem impossible. So with a plan with this many moving parts being rushed, that's what I was trying to bring up. It, it Even without the folks being aware of the situation, this still had a lot of potential to go wrong. Yeah. And uh, what we do know is that the authorities became aware that there was more to the uprising than just talk. And uh, guards became more prominent in the city. Uh, we also know he that our, our good friend Jesse was struggling to find a horse to rent. So what changed? So Major John Wilson had asked his slave George Wilson to ask the other slaves in the city if they knew of a planned insurrection. On June 14th, George hurried back to John that the uprising was to be in two days' time at the stroke of midnight. 400 militia were brought in to protect the city immediately. No alarms were rung, and nothing was to be done to give away that they knew about it until the 16th. So th there's another strange occurrence that lets you know something is afoot. 
if you are super careful about who you recruit and who you approach to go down in this endeavor, which seems, you know, it's clandestine and shit's going to get all fucked up. You're going to have scrutiny about who you pick to bring into your folds. And then one day people start coming to find you asking about it. That seems like it's a bad sign, right? Yeah, I would imagine. So yeah, like clearly when there there wasn't a horse available and like there's all these militia coming in, like something had leaked out and it it was pretty obvious on the the night the 16th arrived, the entire city was on edge. They were waiting for something to happen. According to people that were there 80 years later, uh, when this was somewhat documented, because again, a lot of this was really buried. They wanted to erase this from ever happening in history. When people that had survived this, this time period reflected back, they vividly remember the night when no one in the city of Charleston slept, waiting for fires to erupt. Dense patrols were brought into the city throughout the night. The morning of the 17th came in without any violence. So it seems like Vessi found a way to delay it. While we don't know exactly what happened, we do know there was a dispute at the Vesey residence in the afternoon of the 16th. 50 Africans had canoed into the city secretly that night. Arguments erupted probably about whether or not to attack, despite the fact the city was waiting for it. Jesse Blackwood, our uh, horse guy who waited till the last minute to reach the enslaved on the plantations, couldn't leave the city because the patrols were so dense. Vesey told the leaders to burn their list of recruits and to let everyone know that the revolt would be delayed again. God, it must have been so scary in that city to be just a, like a black guy on the street corner and you go to light a cigarette. <laughs> People just like looking at you like, ah, oh, Tim. <laughs> it began. <laughs> yeah. Uh, after all this, nothing happened. That day, arrests were made and there was nothing in the newspapers. Peter Poyas, Ned Barrett, and Rolla Bennett were grabbed first on the 18th, followed by Mingo Hearth on the 21st. At this point, despite them knowing there was a plan and some of the major figures, Denmark wasn't even still considered a suspect. In fact, once his name was mentioned in um, you know, whatever kind of torture they were doing to get information, they refused to even believe that a respected free black man would have anything to do with the slave uprising. While even a slave uprising happening destroyed their illusion that everyone understood this was the way things were supposed to be, a free man like Vesey represented a much deeper fear. Yeah, I think it's I, I think it would be frightening to see that people that you think are beneath you are up to the challenge of fucking your shit up if you are not treating them equal. Yeah, or even just that like, well, you got yours, so why do you give a shit about other people getting you know, equal treatment. Like you, you won in terms of like from a white man's perspective at this time, talking about a, a free black man, like you won, you're free. Like, why do you give a shit about, you know, other people? You got what you wanted. And that's like, you know, typical white man mentality. Yeah. Like, like, like you can forget about the time that you were a slave because you're not anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? and like you, you made it out. Like, why do you give a shit? Like you take what you've got and be happy with it. And like, you know, why would you give a shit about other people? Like, this is America. We don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, So so Vessi, as this was going on, these interrogations were happening, abandoned his home for one of his wives' homes in the city. On the 22nd, he was captured and was still brought to trial. In the previous episode, we did talk a bit about the trial, so I don't want to cover it in too much detail. But it's understood that the courts extensively documented the event and were let's call it charitable, in their willingness to treat Denmark as a human in terms of due process because of the reasons that we discussed in that episode. They knew their handling of this specific event would be reported in the North, and it was an opportunity for them to prove they weren't 
evil things that the North thought in, ter- in terms of their treatment of the slaves. Okay, so that's, I-, I think it's ironic. I don't know if I'm using it right in this instance, but it, it does stand out that- Like they- this was- a- this was absolutely a PR thing for them. Yeah. Like they use this situation to be like, see, we're not awful slavers. We're treating people like humans, even though they're not. <laughs> even though we're confused why a free black man wanted to free enslaved black people. Right. We don't understand that. But look at us being thoughtful in our eventual you know, hanging of him. Well, I guess that's just good old fashioned Southern hospitality. Oh, it is. Love my Southerners. It does explain, like, understanding that context helps understand, like, why they were so thorough and, like, I I don't want to say considerate, but, like, they gave the man an attorney, which, like, when you would, if you were to say, like, an enslaved or a black man in the South pre-Civil War tried to start an insurrection, is he going to get an attorney? Your answer is going to be no, right? Resounding no, yes. Yeah. So, like, the fact that he did is, like... it's it's interesting, you know. Like it, it speaks to like the the pernicious time that they're in. Like the 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 aristocrats knew that like they were holding on by a thread for a number of reasons because there were, there's way more black people in Charleston than white people. That the North had it for them. Like they they knew their time was coming up. During this trial, it was an opportunity. Like we get we do get some documentation because it was so thoroughly recorded of what was going on in you know the courthouse, the prison cells, and so on. So the only thing that we really have in terms of actually in the prison cells, which is wild that we have anything at all, is that Denmark would be recorded yelling to the other imprisoned men to die like a man. And that's a that's a quote. And to give nothing of the plot to protect their friends and families and their brothers in arms. Yo, my guy was in there really saying no snitching. <laughs> Basically. Clearly did not trust them very much that he was like, listen, guys, I'm going to remind you the reason why we're here and why you cannot snitch. That's a real OG. Yeah, so um, I, I think it's about here. We'll take a, another quick little break. So uh, go go listen to some convincing ads to go s- support us or something else that's cool. And uh, help us keep the lights on here at the Port Pearls Almanac. Hi, I'm Liz here with Red and we're Listen Left. We're really appreciative of Poor Pearl's realistic take on ongoing collapse. They give a reasonable voice to a subject where reasonable voices are hard to find. Listening empowers us to build a world without capitalism, and that's why we've been supporting our comrades' Patreon for over a year now. For our project, Listen Left, we found that many leftist texts, from Marxist-Leninist to anarchists and beyond, are very hard to find as audiobooks, and certainly not for free. So we decided to make those audiobooks. Find us on Instagram, SoundCloud, or just listenleft.org for a ton of free accessible audiobooks. And welcome back. I hope you all are ready for the end of this awesome story. So ready. So ready. Oh, is that supposed to be me? I was going to say, do I push the plunger now? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so, uh, yeah, we were talking about the need for the South to create this, like, ethical court for Denmark, right? And, like, I, I, I do want to clarify that this doesn't mean the court was necessarily fair. And honestly, even in the South, like there was some argument about whether or not he, you know, despite the fact that we're like talking about like they did this whole thing, like this horse and pony show to like show that they weren't terrible people. People in the South were still critical of this. And even a a prominent white aristocrat in Charleston published an article about the lack of evidence needed to convict Denmark and his co-conspirators to death. Whether or not there was enough evidence to convict him of planning something is another story. 
But the Negro Act, which framed the case, had specific requirements for the death penalty to be enacted. The idea was basically to prevent mob rule, which had caused all of these unjustified lynchings in the past. So this is all about like the etiquette of the high society, right? Yeah, it. this is like, it reminds me of like the aristocrats on the Titanic as the ship was sinking, like trying to do things formally and like, look at how good we are, despite like you're going down. Their whole idea was basically to just prove that they weren't backward savages to their their Yankee brethren. Like when when we look at the actual evidence, there was only a handful of weapons that were ever found. There was no list of names. And the only significant evidence was of the wigs and the testimony by the barber for the request. In fact, this led to a claim in 1964 by Richard Wade that the plot never existed at all. The argument he makes was that Denmark was a scapegoat to show that even freed blacks would eventually betray the white social order. Now, before we bother discussing the merits of this argument, a bunch of academics in the 60s and 70s basically shredded his analysis and evidence apart, and it's been basically dismissed from an academic perspective at this point. Okay, but he had the idea that it was fake, though. Yeah, and I I don't know if I put this in my notes for later on, but we'll see. What was really interesting is there was afterwards when they were doing research on like try, like Northerners coming down to try to document things 30, 40, 50 years later. One of the things that came up was taught like being like, well, where were all these weapons? And supposedly some of the people who had been there and around before this event happened said that they were all buried in the swamps when they realized the event wasn't going to happen. So that's why they never found any of the evidence, which is pretty fucking cool to think that like there's probably hundreds of buried guns someplace in outside of Charleston. Yeah. And I mean, if anybody is part of the 2A culture like I am, that's the common way that guns are lost is in boating accidents. It's true. I mean, science. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some reason, everyone likes to bring their, their guns on unsafe boats. Yes. I don't know. It's sort of the the urge to be a pirate, isn't it? That, sort of like innate in us all. That could be it. I mean, that's all you need to be a pirate is have a gun on a boat. Right. It doesn't even and, matter if it's legal. You're you're doing pirate shit. I mean, you're a pirate. Why would you give a shit if it's legal? It's actually better if it's not legal. And then the flip side of that being, if you're a pirate, you know, your boat might not be the most seaworthy vessel. <laughs> so that makes very much sense statistically. Because- Okay, it, so uh, sociologically. Boys, boys, back to the swamp pirates, please. Okay, swamp pirates. So, on July tw- so on July 2nd, 1822, between 6 and 8 a.m., Denmark and his five co-conspirators were hung. Roa Bennett, Bateau Bennett, Ned Bennett, Peter Poyas, and Jesse Blackwood. They were hung like men. They were hung like men. They <laughs> no. Jesus Christ. Uh, they only received a small notice in the newspaper. They were not hung where most criminals were hung in the city, but taken far out to the swamps outside of Charleston, where memorials could not be made and there would be no outrage from the black community. Despite these efforts, congregation of black and white residents endured the unfavorable landscape to stand alongside Denmark and his co-conspirators in their final moments. The city put out an ordinance that any black person wearing mourning clothes would be arrested and whipped, yet some still did. So they try their damnedest to not make a martyr out of a person who was hung on conspiracy to do some cool shit. <laughs> but they ended up making a martyr out of him anyway because they killed him. So Yeah, kind of. I think that's a really good definition of a martyr. Did or was about to do some cool shit. <laughs> yeah, so there's some debate about whether or not this is actually what happened or if this is the story 
of what happened. Because there's an oral tradition that has continued that Vesey was hanged from an oak tree on Ashley Avenue in North Charleston, which is near the former prison and near Potter's Field Cemetery, which would have theoretically allowed for a quick hanging and burial without giving the spectacle which may have spurred a revolt. To this day, we still don't know of his burial site. All said, after all of this happened, 35 black men were hung and over 100 were arrested. Damn, it's a lot. For something that didn't happen. That's not, I mean, so for something that didn't happen, yeah. Yeah. It was conspiracy. Yeah, for conspiracy. What's interesting about all of this is that while so much was done to hide Vesey and his, and his story, the subsequent hangings were done very publicly. Despite the fact that like they were like, oh, don't worry about this. We're going to go hang him in the wood, in the swamps, and no one's going to know about it really or talk about it. The other hangings is like, well, these people aren't as dangerous in terms of like memorialization, but we also want to use them for our leverage to scare people from ever thinking about doing this again. And those subsequent hangings, because, you know, we mentioned there was 35 and five of them were done that one day. They were putting newspaper announcements two weeks prior in the newspaper, and they had like an entire procession going through the city where they wrote on top of their own caskets and were shown to the public before hanging. Yeah, I bet that's a good way to get concessions. I th- I think it is definitely fascinating to see that they had like this PR, like optics spin on the whole situation where they used the courts to appease the North and they still they still went and did the capital punishment to make an example of them to to scare the rest of the population to get the idea out of their head being able to do both at the same time is deftly done but at the same time it's like you can see them speaking out of both sides of their mouth right yeah and like it was very thoughtful in the way they did all of this and unsurprisingly from this big like procession there is some pretty significant fallout Part of the reason why there was some pretty significant fallout was that the public hanging was botched and um, word spread up north of the horrors of the South so much that the governor, Thomas Bennett, eventually proclaimed slavery a moral evil. Yes, for context, if that name sounds familiar, that's the same Bennett whose three slaves planned to kill him. The significance of this event, not just Denmark, but the hangings, spread quickly throughout the South. And basically, all of the white Southerners tried to burn any evidence of this incident in case other slaves found out about the attempt. Okay, so did it go well, or did they end up burning down Charleston, which exacted and completed Denmark Bessie's plan? Yeah, so uh, this basically all led to the Secretary of War moving troops into Charleston to protect it from any additional insurrections, which, you know, had some impact on its ability to sustain attacks during the Civil War. It's no surprise, given this history, that on January 9th, 1861, the first shots of the Civil War sprung out in Charleston. But despite all of this, there's some really, like, cosmic beauty that takes place here. So John Hamilton, the man who oversaw the trials and tried to use it as a springboard to a career in politics, eventually kind of went nuts. He, he claimed to have nightly talks with the ghost of Charles Calhoun, who is his political hero, it slowly went broke. He also decided that the best course of action was to go west to East Texas, and while on a ship in the Gulf going west, they slammed into another vessel and his body was never found. Okay, so he's still out there somewhere. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> he's, he's like a merman now or some shit. Floating around with all those swamp rifles. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have to make a, a set of movies as me as Denmark Bessie, and we're gonna have to find somebody to play this guy because he sounds fun. 
Yeah, I mean, fun is a very relative word here. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Fun, fun in terms of us being insane on the Poor Pearl's Almanac. Yeah. While he went insane, there's another piece of like cosmic beauty that takes place in Charleston. So when Charleston fell during the Civil War, a few weeks later, a memorial was held and abolitionists came to Charleston to speak, including Robert Vesey, who was Denmark's son. Thomas Higginson, a white officer from the North and a political defender of both Frederick Douglass and John Brown, settled in Charleston after the Civil War to train the first black regiment of the U.S. Army in Charleston. While there, he took the opportunity to write the first biography of Denmark, interviewing folks in the city who remembered the plot and argued that had it not been for the leaks, there is no reason why the city wouldn't have fallen to the rebellion. Given his background as a, you know, a, a military person and his work defending Frederick Douglass and John Brown, he was often more trusted by the local black community than most white reporters that came down from the North to speak of the rebellion. Here it is. So Higginson was the one that was told about the weapons being buried in coffins on one of the islands that's a swamp, and that despite the oral tradition, he didn't seem to have anyone he spoke with corroborate that um, Denmark was hung from the Ashley Avenue oak tree. So we had this like beautiful moment of like, Denmark's son coming back to the city. So only a few years later, after all of this, they raised money to rebuild the church that had been burned after the hanging of Denmark. We had talked about how they tore it down and then burned it because tearing it down wasn't just enough. And it was actually his son, Robert, a carpenter and an architect, because his dad was a carpenter, who was the one to oversee its construction. And this is the same Emmanuel church from the 2015 uh, shooting. Correct. Jesus Christ. Yes. I mean, his house or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess it was Jesus's house. It was his house. Like, yeah, it. it's, you know, we understand this, these ideas of like, oh, this, like when we talk about the Emmanuel church, that it was like this historical church, but like within this context, that church has so much more value other than just being like, oh, this is a historically black African church in, in Charleston. Like, no, there's a very vivid and important and valuable history to this church that's much more than just being a church in the South. And that's why, you know, it was, that's why it was chosen. But also, it speaks to, like, how the effects of what happened in 1822 are still being felt today, right? Even in that church, there is a, a, a I don't know what you want to call it, like, a, not a statue, but like an engraving, I guess. But because there's no pictures of his face, it's actually the back of his head because they don't know what he looked like. There's one picture that's like questionable whether or not it's even him. So we we have so little because so much was burned, but his story still lives on, which is like awesome. In the limited testimony we have from the case, he was always described as like an intelligent, intimidating, attractive, and very politically savvy person. He was described to have held everyone to a higher standard. And in one person's testimony, a lot of the people that had worked with him to try to, you know, start this rebellion would say that they, in quote, feared Denmark more than God, uh, which is like, those, those are some choice words to describe a, another human being. And, you know, we, we could talk about whether or not it was ethical to like argue to kill white kids or white women. But like, he was clearly a man trying to make the best of an imperfect system. And, you know, we, we ended up seeing the ideas of Denmark later manifest in like, different ways, whether it was like Nat Turner or Marcus Garvey or Malcolm X, right? Yeah. And I think it's definitely that that quote, they feared Denmark more than God, definitely speaks to the way he carried himself and his convictions. I don't think people would go to him and think, you know, that's somebody to play with. He doesn't seem like a guy who 
plays around and when he has a problem, he deals with it. So he had a problem with white folks owning black people. He was ready to deal with that in absolutes, whether that means killing everybody and hunting down children, he was going to eradicate that problem, make sure it didn't come back to bite him. And I think that's, that's somebody who you don't play with. And I think that's what people got the vibe from him. And I think also white men who were running the city also got that vibe from him and didn't want it to be contagious to anybody else, because that is something different entirely than somebody who's what lashing out and running for their own survival versus saying that, you know, everybody should be demanding this and we can take it. We don't need to ask. Also for such like a, for, you know, the rebellion having such like a religious element that we'd like talked about in the first episode, I feel like they fear Denmark more than God is like even more powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I I agree with that. But like I said, I think that speaks to his convictions, meaning he was willing to put in the action to back it up. Or when you go to church, it's just a lot of talk and interpretation. This is a person who was willing to put that into action with his hands. Very true. Yeah. And I, that was part of why I wanted to like start the, the three part series with like talking about like th- this context so that when we're talking about this story, it's like y- you have some reason to understand like why what was happening is so important and so such a big deal instead of trying to unpack it later on. Yeah, it, it was really interesting to, to like dive into the story of something I knew kind of topically. And then uh, I had to, you know, go in a little bit deeper and understand it within a deeper context. And uh, yeah, it's it's definitely a story that I think it's not just significant in terms of being like the first major attempt of a slave rebellion in the United States, but also because it's been so buried. And even until recently, there was really no markers of him in the city. I believe they've put one up at that Ashley tree now. I, I I don't I didn't write it down, but I'm I'm fairly certain they did. And like it's a story that nobody really knows. If you do it as of the time that we were recording this, I looked on Spotify and I have not seen one podcast episode cover this, which is wild to me considering if you googled like if you looked for like a John Brown story on Spotify, there's probably 30 of them, 50 of them. But this was like far more valuable and probably incredibly impactful on John Brown. So like it, it deserves to be heard. Hopefully, if you've been listening this far, you've enjoyed this three-parter. And um, I think it's a really great story that people should be aware of. And hopefully we've shed some some light on an important part of history. Yeah, the history and like the present. We've talked a lot about the history of Charleston with seeing still people, for better or worse, interacting with this history. So, you know, without this important context, it can be hard to fully, like, comprehend or, like, appreciate the actions and decisions that people make. Yeah, and killing entire populations in cities isn't isn't cool. Unless you are enslaved. Unless you're enslaved. <laughs> in which case, there are no fucking rules. Nope, nothing matters. Do what you gotta do. And is that the bumper sticker for this episode? Or? <laughs> yes, I absolutely. Think so. Yeah, every everyone that buys one, all of the money goes to the proceeds of the Elliot Needs More Guns Foundation. I do. So, it, in the in our next episode, we'll be jumping into the last story of this mini series, one that's a bit more topical, but very very important and not talked about nearly enough. And I know Elliot is very excited to get into it. I am. So, I don't even know what it is. It's the one. It's your baby, Elliot. Oh, I did it. 
Yeah. So okay. Uh, yeah. Then I guess I'm excited. I don't know. Yeah, you should be excited. <laughs> I'm excited. So until next time, uh, hopefully you guys tune in to some other content of ours. And this is the uh, what are we, Matt? Come on, intern. With a poor pros almanac. Try to try to so reclaim that status again. I brought up one movie reference this episode. I was talking about Django, but we cut out the part where that reference made sense because we didn't talk about the Sugarland Plantation. And oh, how, yeah, Candyland. How, how I think that was a reference. Yeah, I think Candyland was a, probably a reference. Oh, for that. damn. Yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. The Sugar Shack. Oh. Uh, Elliot's dropping knowledge on me, and I didn't even catch it. I'm oh, so I lo- disappointed. You know, I love movies, Andy. I, you do. I, can't, I can't read, but I can watch a movie. You are Andy, a movie these man. These are the things you miss out on when you refuse to watch. I've watched <laughs> Django. It's just been a long time. Right. I want to make this into a movie, but it would be a fun version of it, right? Get this. So it's Denmark Vesey, right? And there's no violence, but what they do is they Ocean's Eleven Charleston. <laughs> and 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 they they get the whole they get the whole city in like a gotcha moment. And it's like we outnumber you. Ah, jigs up. And like everybody's like, ah, well played, you're a mastermind. That's so fun. <laughs> uh, that's like the musical version. Yeah. That'd <laughs> Much be fun. less dramatic. We could do it with pop caps and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, see you guys next week and um yeah. Peace out. Later. Next time.